Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So this morning, I'm going to take the liberty of breaking this story up into a few different scenes. Because I think that it's helpful to picture the Word of God. We've been talking about it being the story of God, you know, a meta-narrative, God speaking into the world about what He's doing. And we've looked at all the different ways you can explain that, you know, the, 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 these different scenes, like the creation, the fall, the kingdom, the, you know, you, we've been through that a lot. And we've looked at it in, in a couple of other different ways, you know, the, I can't even picture it in my head right now, but we've been going through this kind of idea for quite a few years now. So I find it really helpful just to break some of these stories up into scenes and to pause between each one just to reflect for a moment. So that's what I'm going to do as we start today. I'm going to kind of give you the pre-story in three sections and between each section I'm going to invite you to consider a question on the screen. I'm not going to ask anyone to share their reflection like I sometimes do, so I'm just letting you off the hook in advance. Just want you to reflect on the question that I provided. If you have a better or different question, then reflect on that. Because who am I to say what God is wanting to say to you this morning, right? But I've also taken the liberty of highlighting a few phrases in, this, in these first few scenes that, are, that I'm hoping you'll consider and lock away in your mind as we work through this morning's story. So the first scene I've called or titled Sickness. And I'm going to put it up on the screen. Um, if, you, if you can't read it, then just listen along. But you can see the question at the bottom there. Now, there was a certain man who was very ill. His name was Lazarus, and he lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. When his condition worsened, the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is very ill. When Jesus heard the message, he said to his disciples, his sickness will not end in his death, but will bring great glory to God. As these events unfold, the Son of God will be exalted. And I wonder, what do you suppose Mary and Martha were hoping for when they sent word to Jesus about Lazarus's illness? Next scene, return. Now Jesus dearly loved Mary, Martha and Lazarus. However, after receiving the news, he wanted, he waited two more days where he was before saying to his disciples, it is time to return to Judea. The disciples were concerned. Teacher, last time you were there, some Jews attempted to stone you. Why would you want to go back? Jesus wanted to assure them that his time had not yet come, so he said to them, There are 12 hours of daylight, correct? If anyone walks in the day, that person does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks at night, he will trip and fall because he does not have the light within. Our friend Lazarus has gone to sleep, so I will go to awaken him. The disciples replied, well, if he's sleeping, then he will be all right. I wonder, why the delay? What was it that Jesus was waiting for? 
Third scene, death. Jesus had used the word sleep as a metaphor for death. But the disciples took him literally and did not understand. So Jesus spoke plainly to them. Lazarus is dead. And I am grateful for your sakes that I was not there when he died. Now you will see and believe. Gather yourselves. Let's go to him. Thomas the twin said to the other disciples, let's go too so that we can die with him. And as Jesus was approaching Bethany, he found out that Lazarus had been placed in his tomb four days ago. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, I am grateful for your sakes. I am grateful for your sakes that I was not there when he died. Now you will see and believe. Just before we dig a little deeper into this story, I want to take a moment to talk about the book of John um, as a piece of literature because it actually is very helpful for us as we engage with this story to understand where John is coming from. You can go to the next slide, please, Derek. The first thing I want to talk about is the idea of purpose. In other words, why did John write his gospel? Well, luckily for us, he actually tells us that. I find that really helpful, by the way, when I'm studying. You ask a question, I wonder why he wrote this. Oh, he's telling me. It's right there in John chapter 20. Let me read it for you. At the end of his gospel, he says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miracles, Uh, Sorry, many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So there's the purpose for the book, right? These are written, and we'll talk about the these in a moment, so that you may continue to believe, or that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Now, unlike the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark and Luke, John intentionally frames the ministry of Jesus around only seven miracles. Did you know that? John only records seven miracles. And interestingly, there are seven I am statements and there are also seven specific sections of teaching. So it's a very highly constructed book. It's very interesting. And uh, the miracles of this... Now, I know for the scholars here that there are more than one list of which are the seven miracles. I know there's been some debate for centuries. I am nowhere near qualified enough to enter into that debate. It maybe is neither here nor there. Some people believe that walking on water was a private sign and doesn't apply to the list and that his crucifixion was the seventh sign. There's some validity to that idea. However, I'm going with the more widely held list uh, and I'm not going to go into the reasons for that. But you will recall the stories, I imagine. Changing water into wine at the wedding at Cana is the first sign. Healing the royal official's son, you know, where he did it at a distance, that's the second sign. Healing the paralysed man at the pool of Bethesda who'd been crippled for, what was it, 38 years? Something like that, nearly 40 years. The feeding of the 5,000 was uh, the fourth sign. Walking on water, the fifth. Healing the man 
born blind in John chapter 9, and of course the one we're looking at today, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So there are seven signs, and again I'm touching on the purpose, seven signs written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But it's actually really important for us to know why John is using these seven signs. Because how John uses miracle stories in his gospel is actually very different to how the synoptic gospel writers use miracle stories in their gospels. In the synoptic gospels, the miracle stories are used predominantly to teach or to expound on, this, on, a, on, a, on a number of ideas, but, but centrally that the kingdom of God has arrived and is now at work in the world. That's what the miracle stories serve in the Synoptic Gospels. This new kingdom, which was ushered in by the arrival of Emmanuel, um, was what the prophet Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 61, which is in itself a prophecy that Jesus claimed that he had come to fulfil. We read that in Luke chapter 4. Let me just read it to you to refresh your memory. Jesus goes into the synagogue as it was his custom. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue were on him and they looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. So you can see that Jesus is claiming ownership of that prophecy as applying to himself. So the miracles performed by Jesus as recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke all serve to demonstrate and validate Jesus' claim that he is the true Messiah. That's why they recorded. But in John, the miracle stories serve a different purpose. And for John, it's not so much the details of the event or even the historical accuracy of the miracle that matter to him, but rather that each one is told to highlight a specific spiritual truth. And so John uses seven miracle stories, or signs as they're called, to magnify the presence of the Logos, which is the Word of God, which in turn glorify God and exalt Jesus as the Son of God, as well as bring about transformation in the lives of those who believe. So we need to touch really quickly on what logos means because it's a word that we've probably heard if you've been around church for a while you will have heard this this phrase before but what specifically does it mean and why is John using it? And I think that it's really interesting to note that John opens his gospel with these words and they'll sound familiar to you because it echoes the creation narrative in Genesis. In the beginning the word or the logos existed. The logos was with God and the logos was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The Logos gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. 
So by identifying Jesus as the Logos, the Word, John intends to show his audience that everything that he's about to tell them about Jesus is super significant, very important. And this is especially true for whom the people that John is writing to, both those who, who already believe and those he is hoping to convince of the faith. And many scholars agree that when John wrote his gospel, um, we believe whilst he was serving the church in Ephesus sometime between, I don't know, 85 to 95 AD, so some 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, that he intentionally uses this phrase, the word, the logos, for a reason. You see, at that particular point in history, Ephesus had become a melting pot, if you like, of different religious and philosophical ideas. Ideas from places like Rome, Greece, Persia, India, Egypt, and of course Judaism. And each of these religious traditions had some concept of or belief in a spiritual connection between the infinite and the finite, right? They all have it. A connection between the divine and the earthly. And almost without exception, um, all of these religions or philosophies had some notion of a spoken word, an, an utterance, a sound, a divine sound, a cosmic language, if you want to use that terminology. A cosmic language that served as a connection between the heavenly and the earthly realms. That was a common idea. It's not new to, to John's Gospel, it's not new to Christianity, it's not new to Judaism. Judaism have their own um, idea of that and we can read about that in the Old Testament. But all of these other religions and philosophies have their own same concept. Does that make sense? There's a, a language, a, a sound. I think in, in some uh, ancient Indian cultures, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a thing called the, the um or the um. We make a joke of it, but it's very serious. It's, it's a sound or a phrase that they make before they pray or meditate. And the sound literally means, I am connecting the heavenly with the earthly. And all of the different religions and philosophies have something like that. It's a, it's a sound, a word. The Greeks actually used the word logos long before John did, because logos is a Greek word. It literally means... It literally means word or, or, or spoken word or utterance. So it's not even a, a John word. He's borrowed it from Greek culture. It's not the word necessarily that the Hebrews would have used in their literature, although that, it's been translated that way. Anyway, so by using this word intentionally, that's really important for our story this morning. When John names Jesus as the Logos or the incarnate word of God, and when he records seven specific acts performed by Jesus, he's actually presenting Jesus in a very specific way. And this is not my, uh, these are not my words, I found them somewhere, I like them, but I'll put them into simple speak in a moment. He's identifying Jesus as the second person of the Godhead, who is the eternal expression of the divine intelligence, and the disclosure of the divine essence. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Do you want to hear it again? Jesus is the second person of the Godhead who is the eternal expression of the divine intelligence and the disclosure of the divine essence, logos. 
In other words, this is what he's saying. That connecting link between heaven and earth, between God and man, which others just pursue as an idea, as a whisper, as an echo. We Christians possess in reality. Do you see what he's saying? All of these other religions and philosophies have a concept of logos, but we possess it as a reality. We have heard him. We have seen him. We have touched him. His name is Jesus. So what about this particular miracle that we're looking at today? What is it that John wants to tell us specifically about Jesus through this event? And, you know, to be fair, there's actually a number of lessons that we can draw from this miracle, a number of principles that we might draw out from this story. And I guess in one sense, uh, all of them might be valid and helpful because, as we know, the Word of God is powerful. It's like a two-edged sword. It pierces the heart of man right to the very core of who we are and, and it's able to touch the human heart, the human mind, the human spirit. And it's, it is true, as you know, that there are as many ways that God can speak to you as there are people who hear a story, right? Because it's kind of how it works. It's dynamic. But it's important to ask the question, what did John have in mind when he gave us this story? Because it's obviously intentional, right? He selected this as his seventh sign. What spiritual principle is he wanting to highlight by using it? And at the heart of this story, really, is a conversation between Jesus and Martha. You can go to the next slide, please, Derek. Let me read the story to you. I've called it Hope. The news of Lazarus' death spread quickly, and many people travelled the short distance from Jerusalem to Bethany to comfort Mary and Martha as they mourned the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was approaching Bethany, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed behind at the house. When Martha found Jesus, she said to him, Lord, if you had been with us, my brother would not have died. Even so, I still believe that anything you ask of God will be done. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise to life. I know, Martha said. He will rise again when everyone is resurrected on the last day. Jesus replied to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Messiah, God's own son who has come into the world. Then Martha ran home to find Mary. Come with me, she said. The teacher is here and he is asking for you. Mary did not waste a minute. She got up and went to the same spot where Martha had found Jesus outside the village. The people who had gathered in her home to offer support and comfort assumed that she was going back to the tomb to cry and mourn, so they followed her there. When Mary saw Jesus, she fell at his feet. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would still be alive. When Jesus saw Mary's profound grief and the wailing and weeping of her companions... He was deeply moved in his spirit and intensely troubled. Where have you laid his body? He asked them. Come and see, Lord, the mourners said. And as they walked, Jesus wept. 
Everyone noticed how much Jesus must have loved Nazareth, but some were sceptical. If this man can give sight to the blind, then surely he could have kept Lazarus from dying. And then Jesus, who was intensely troubled by all of this, approached the tomb, which was nothing more than a small cave covered by a massive stone. Remove the stone, he commanded. Martha replied, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The stench will be unbearable. Jesus said to her, remember, remember that I told you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Jesus lifted his eyes toward heaven and said, Father, I am grateful that you have heard me. I know that you are always listening, but I proclaim it loudly so that everyone here believe that you have sent me. Lazarus, come out! And right before their very eyes, Lazarus walked out of his tomb, bound from head to toe in burial cloths, And Jesus instructed some nearby people, loose him and let him go. Many of the Jews who had come with Mary saw what happened and believed in Jesus, but some went straight to the Pharisees to report what they had witnessed Jesus doing. And as a result of these reports and at short notice, the chief priests and Pharisees called an emergency meeting of the High Council. The Pharisees demanded to know, what are we going to do about this man? He is performing many miracles. If we don't stop this now, every man, woman and child will believe in him. And do you know what happened next? You know what will happen next. The Romans will think he is mounting a revolution and he will destroy our temple and that will be the end of our nation. Now a man named Caiaphas, who was serving as the high priest that year, spoke up. You have no idea what you are talking about. What you don't understand is that it is better for you that one man should die for the people so that the whole nation won't perish. And without even knowing it, Caiaphas was prophesying that Jesus would die on behalf of the entire nation and not just for the children of Israel. He would die so that people from the four corners of the world might become children of God. And in that moment, they cemented their intentions to have Jesus executed And from that day forward, Jesus refrained from walking publicly amongst the people of Judea. He withdrew to a small town known as Ephraim in a rural area near the wilderness where he set up camp with his disciples and waited for the right time to return to Jerusalem. We'll go to the next slide. Thanks, Derek. Let's just take... uh, quick look back through the dialogue between Jesus and Martha. As Jesus approaches Bethany, we find out that um, Martha goes out, out of the village or onto the road to meet him. Lord, if you had been with us, my brother would not have died. And uh, even so, I still believe that anything you ask of God will be done. What exactly is Martha saying here, do you think? And more importantly, how is she saying it? Is she angry? Is she annoyed? Is she confused? Hurt? 
disappointed? It's kind of hard to tell from the text, but I think it is safe to say that I think she's been thinking about this for a very long time, well, for some time at least. We've all been there, right? When we're hurt or disappointed or grieved by someone. Do we not rehearse what we're going to say over and over and over and over? We rehearse it in our sleep. We rehearse it when we're brushing our teeth. We rehearse it when we're driving in the car. We long for that moment when we can say what we've got to say. Am I alone in that? I'm not, am I? We, we all do it. It's part of human nature. We play it over in our head. And I think, honestly, if we're going to be honest about it, because we're talking about real people here. It's not just some airy-fairy narrative. We're talking about real people with real emotions, with, with, you know, just like us. I think that's what Martha was doing here. She's hurt, she's disappointed, she's confused, she's all of those things that she might be. And she says, Lord, if you had been with us, my brother would not have died. Even so, I still believe that anything you ask of God will be done. Now, we know from the story that her brother, Lazarus, has been sick or ill for some time, right? And it's highly likely, and I'm just imagining here because this is how the human body works, you get sick, you get worse, things get bad, right? That's kind of what happens if you have a serious illness. And so because of his worsening condition, Martha and Mary both wished for Jesus to stop by. And if he had have stopped by, this is what they were hoping, I believe, then he would have been able to heal their brother. Who wouldn't want that, right? If you'd been walking and talking and, and if you knew Jesus and if you'd seen the things that he'd done in the previous three years, wouldn't you want that? Of course you would. That's what they wanted. That's what they'd hoped for. He could have stopped in at some point on his travels, healed their brother, just as he had done for so many other people over the past three years. But Jesus didn't visit. He was doing other things. It wasn't until things took a turn for the worst that they sent word to Jesus. And in a way, and we kind of touched on this in, in communion, which is just mind-blowing to me, in a way I imagine it to be like that phone call you might get from the hospital. And I know some of you have had that phone call or from a nursing home. You better come in, things are looking dire. Things are serious. You know, you know what I'm talking about? The one that you love is deteriorating quickly and you should come as soon as possible. And so in a last-ditch effort, perhaps fueled by a mix of fear and hope, Martha and Mary were reaching out to their friend Jesus because they knew something about who he was and what he could do. I really believe that, but I just feel that it's important to add at this moment that it's also entirely possible and quite likely that as well as that, they were just reaching out to a friend. Because wouldn't you want to know if your good friend was dying? They're reaching out to a friend. But Jesus delays his return. Deliberately. This is actually a really important element in John's story. Um, and it gives us, I think, a key clue for understanding the deeper meaning behind 
uh, why John is telling this story. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples that, you know, when, when he rec- first received the report about Lazarus, he said this, his sickness would not end in his death, what will bring great, great glory to God. As these events unfold, the Son of God will be exalted. And I think here we can see clearly that Jesus understands fully that these events are going to serve a specific purpose. And that purpose is already stated by John to bring glory to God and to exalt the Son of God. But what about the other part of Mary's statement? Even so, I still believe that anything you ask of God will be done. And it would seem, I think, at first glance that Martha is hinting at the possibility of a resurrection for her brother, right? That's what it would seem like she's asking. However, when you jump down to verse 39, she says something which I think disproves that idea. After Jesus ordered the stone covering to be removed, it seems, I think, to indicate that she, has, she actually has doubts that a, that, a, that, a, that a now resurrection is even possible because she says, it's, it says Martha said, but it really should say she, she protested. She protested or cautioned, Lord, he's been dead for four days, the stench will be terrible. That indicates to me that she doesn't actually believe that a resurrection is going to happen now. So what on earth is she talking about in verse 22? And I think the statement is, in reality, a confession of Martha's ongoing faith in Jesus. She means, in effect, even though you weren't here in time to help, I still believe that God grants you whatever you request. Do you see the difference? She understands that Jesus couldn't or wasn't able to be there, whether she knows that he delayed intentionally, is unknown in the story, But nevertheless, she makes this interesting statement, I still believe that anything you ask of God will be done. Despite my circumstance, I still believe that. Here's a woman of faith. And John is actually making a deliberate point here. You see, her faith in Jesus and his ability to do the work of God has not diminished despite her circumstance However, by including this statement, John is setting the scene for a greater spiritual lesson that this sign ultimately will point toward. Are you following me so far? Because what Jesus says next is actually very matter of fact. There's nothing cryptic or mystical about the words that come out of his mouth. He simply states the fact, your brother will rise to life. And it would seem, I think, that Martha hears these words as nothing more than a customary statement of consolation. Let me explain what that means, because you've all heard them, right? Because, in, because when Jesus says, your brother will rise to life, her reply is, is, I know. I know he will rise again when everyone is resurrected on the last day. A customary statement of consolation. We see them in Hollywood all the time, when there are two people having a dialogue and someone says, oh, you know, oh, my, 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 my mother passed away, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That phrase is a customary consolation. It, it, it's genuine, but it's just said. 
right? It's an accepted statement. Another one would be along the lines of, and we often hear this in Christian circles, um, and it's, it's quite valid, and it, it's, I think, in many, many circumstances, genuine, although maybe not always helpful, because Christians are someone who's good at putting their foot in their mouth. When someone has passed away, they say something like, and I, I mean no disrespect by that, because we've all done it and we've all heard it, they say something like, well, at least now they're with Jesus. Like, it's a genuine statement, but it's, it's a customary response, right? It's a customary condolence. It's, it's offered genuinely, so I'm not saying it's not, but that's what this statement is. Your brother will rise to life, I know. He will rise again when everyone is resurrected on the last day. She believed that. She's a woman of faith and there's no doubting, I think, at this point that Martha is not a true believer and her faith in the promises of God actually offer her a glimmer of future hope, right? A glimmer of future hope. But here comes the punchline. And John is good at punchlines. And indeed, the overarching point of this whole sign, when Jesus seeks to stretch Martha's faith and call her into a deeper understanding of who he actually is. You see, Martha viewed this um, kind of future resurrection as something distant and remote, but Jesus wants to, to, see, to see very clearly that the true source of life and resurrection is actually standing right in front of her. It's him. That's the point of this story. Because he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's just track with this dialogue. Your brother will rise to life. I know. He will rise again when everyone is resurrected on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies, and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What a question. He's asking it of Martha, right? Do you believe this? Do you believe this. Martha replied, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, God's own son who came into the world. And then in what is perhaps the greatest of all his miracles, Jesus steps up to the threshold of death itself and calls his friend out of darkness and into the light. Proving for all who were witnesses to the event that he was who he claimed to be. And showing for all eternity that amongst all of his other powers, Jesus held the power over life and death. Let's not miss the gravity of this truth, right? When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's actually claiming to be the source of both. You can underline, if you've got your Bible there, underline the end. Because sometimes we like to live in one or the other. He calls us to live in both. I am the resurrection and the life. When Jesus says this, he's claiming to be the source of both. There is no resurrection apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, there is no eternal life. Wow. 
but there's more to it than that. You see, John is using this sign to make a statement concerning Jesus' divine nature. You see, the Son of God does more than give life. The Son of God is life. He is life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Have you ever noticed that before? The one who lives and believes. Greek can be a funny language. You could phrase that this way. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies and the one who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Andrew, do you want to come up, mate? Thanks. Everything that John has written in his gospel leads us to this question. Everything. And interestingly, or should I say intentionally, everything that John has written in his gospel points us toward the answer. Do you believe this? There's an interesting interaction toward the end of John's Gospel that I think really underscores this this question. And it involves someone who's been in our story today. In John 20, it's just after his resurrection. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. It's the same Thomas. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And so, John, and so John's question is, is as relevant today, 2,000 years after the event, as it was then, as it has always ever been. Right? It's as relevant as it, to us, to you, to me, as it was to Martha, as it was to Thomas, to Peter, to all who have come from then, between then and now, who have been faced with this question, do you believe? And so a simple invitation this morning to respond to this story. And if you'd like to respond in some way, then our prayer team would love to receive you after we've, uh, I'm not sure if we're singing or not, maybe, I don't know, but the prayer team will be available. If you'd like to respond to this story in some way, come and seek one of them out. They'd love to pray for you. It may be that you've heard this story many times and often wondered, is, 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 is it real, is it true? And Jesus simply invites you to believe. Do you believe this? And as with all the other miracle stories in John, there's an intentional response. People's lives are changed because they act on what they've seen and heard. And that invitation is the same today.
do you by faith believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he has power over the created world? That he has power over sickness and sin? That he has power over death itself? And that he is the only way through which you can know and experience eternal life? Not just in the future, but in your present reality today. Do you believe?